So turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. As I've pointed out there in your bulletin this morning, we'll see that in Acts 8, we see the false conversion and unregenerate state of Simon the magician. And we want to look at this this morning so we ourselves will be better prepared to minister to unrepentant false believers imprisoned in their sin and destined for eternal wrath. See, this is, in our hearts, should be, why we want to discern who the believer is versus who the believer isn't. The Bible makes it plain that you can know the difference. You must know the difference. The Apostle John says it's obvious. He says it's obvious who the children of God are and who the children of Satan are. And so if it's obvious, if we're discerning, we will be over the long haul, over the course of time, able to know the difference. Now, I know what phrase you're thinking of. We don't know anybody's heart. And I agree. We don't know anybody's heart in the detail, but as Jesus has said, out of the mouth speaks the heart. The conduct of one's life is the result of who he is. And so in due time, a person shows himself either to be a believer or to be an unbeliever. The way Jesus said it to the Pharisees was, show yourself by your fruits. In fact, engage in the deeds of repentance. That's the key. That's the issue. A life of repentance. That's the mark of the true believer. Let me just get some things out of the way. It is not the mark of a true believer that he asks Jesus into his heart. It is not the mark of a true believer that he makes a decision for Jesus. It is not the mark of a true believer that he decides to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of his life. Now you've all heard those phrases and maybe at one time, maybe even today, those phrases are important to you because in your mind, that's the moment in time when you initiated a relationship with God. But as you'll see from this text, that's not what happened. It's not what happened. It's not to say that you weren't willfully involved. That's not to say that you weren't excited and overjoyed to embrace the person of Jesus. Of course you were. Of course you were involved. But we want to look at the scripture to see what it looks like when a man thinks he's involved and he persuades other people to think he is involved and he's actually not because that is the point of this text. Now, at some point in the near future, I'll do part two on this based on the next segment of scripture that follows this where there is one who plainly reveals true belief. But the person we're going to look at this morning is the false believer. And if you had thought up to this point that it was unimportant to consider the fact that you you know unbelievers and there are those who have persuaded others to think that they are believers, keep in mind that this is from the Bible. There's a reason, there's an obvious reason that the Lord has given us this text and it is that so you and I would first acknowledge the fact that the apostles themselves thought Simon was a Christian and he fooled them. As best we can tell, Philip, the evangelist, baptized him. Praise God for Peter, who himself had been greatly and publicly rebuked a number of times up to this point, and he steps in and in a sense saves the farm. You want to be that person. That's what you want to be. You want to be the person who is bold and gentle. You want to be the person who's loving and truthful. You want to be the person that's more concerned about someone's soul than you are your popularity with them. You want to be the person who loves people more than you want them to like you. Point number one in our effort this morning to see that Simon the magician is unregenerate so that we may minister to unrepentant false believers imprisoned to their sin. Point number one, the influence of a deceiver. In this case, it's magic. The influence of a deceiver. The title of your message this morning is Magic, baptism, and false conversion. You might have wondered when you saw that, where in the world are we going? 
well, we're just going to the Bible. The Lord addresses it, so we want to take a look at it. We'll look together at this text of Scripture that deals with all three in a way that really shouldn't surprise us. It might seem like a a strange combination, but it should be uh, something that doesn't catch us off guard to see them in the same passage. You see, there will be those engaged in deceit who will actually follow through in water baptism and then prove to be unconverted, unregenerate. Now, you know this. Water baptism does not save you, and it might shock you to hear that baptism does save you. Those are the words of Peter the Apostle. He says, baptism saves you, and then he goes on to explain clearly that it is not the washing away of dirt. So his point is, it's not water baptism that saves you, it's identification with the Holy Spirit. It's Holy Spirit baptism. When the Holy Spirit baptizes someone, he has saved that person. He has caused that person to be born again. But there will be those who will engage willfully, even meaningfully, even sincerely in water baptism who are not regenerate. You know, for my children, um, sometimes I can still convince them that I can pull off my finger. (laughs) The younger ones, anyway. You were enamored with magic as a child, and so was I. Someone, somewhere, somehow, pulled something off that made you convinced that it was magic. I remember recently hearing a friend tell me about going to a magic house, a place where it's just full of all kinds of illusion. And my friend came back and said, this is what happened. This guy asked me to take my watch off. So he took my watch. And then later in the show, he asked a man to get up off the box he was sitting on. And the man said, I'm not sitting on a box. And he said, stand up. And sure enough, the man was sitting on a box. There was a small box between him and his chair that he didn't know was there. He said, I want you to open up that box. And when that man opened up that box, my watch was in it. Now, I'm here to tell you, I don't know how that guy did that. I don't know how that stuff works. But you and I know it's illusion. It's trickery. It's done for the sake of entertainment. And we don't really have an opinion on that. not here to talk to you about that. Simon's efforts to persuade people involved trickery. It's illusion. See, this is similar to what a deceiver does. And he uses it to his advantage and the disadvantage and expense of others. He capitalizes on their willingness to trust him. That's what a deceiver does. He exploits those who let him. He exercises great influence because he can. And he'll use that influence as long as he can and even attempt to use it long after he's been exposed. If he's lived long enough and he's been effective enough to convince people significantly enough, then even when the jig is up and he's been proven to engage in falsehood and trickery and deceit, he will still cling to his ability to deceive others because he is convinced that he is able to do so because he has been able to do so. He exploits those who let him. In verse 9 of our text this morning, of Acts chapter 8, the text reads this way, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. He amazed the people of Samaria. That's what you need to know about Simon. His trickery, his magic was good. It was effective. Just like you and me, when we've seen things that blow our minds... He was effective. The people watched and they were amazed at what he did. He's a magic man, they thought. He's good at deception and he knows it because so many people are fooled by it. So he keeps doing it. In his case, he was making a significant profit off of it. But then this little phrase here is added, saying that he himself was somebody great. It's a little different. That's a little different twist on the ability to deceive. You know, a guy's an illusionist, that's one thing. But when he himself declares himself to be great, it could be because he's starting to think that he is, and he certainly wants you to think that he is. 
Isn't that interesting that this would be thrown in here? Saying that he himself was somebody great. I watched a video recently of a preacher who was angry with someone in the congregation for sleeping and he came down out of the pulpit and made comments directly to that person and on his way down there he said, you don't understand, I'm somebody important. (laughs) I can't tell you how astonished I was. You are too by such a comment. But the man who has been effective at convincing others of his greatness is going to be tempted to continue to do that. That was the case with Simon. The truth is, though, if you can convince one person to believe something about you, specifically that you are great, you're on your way to having a significant following because that person is going to try to convince somebody else of that too. If they're convinced you're great, then they're going to try to convince somebody else that you're great because they want them to be bowled over by it as well. And especially if you pretend that you don't like to talk about it. You know, that false humility that's actually true pride. The person who does everything he can to get his name out there and get people to be wowed by his presence. And then when some of that attention comes back, he puts on an even better act by pretending that that's not really what he's trying to do. I think it's important here to note that the term here for magic conjures up thoughts of a conglomeration of things. Conjures up thoughts of a conglomeration of sorcery, astrology, black magic, witchcraft, and more. And really what you can boil it down to is taking every avenue to be able to effectively deceive others. All that's necessary to convince others of something that's not true. In verse 10, we read, they all paid attention to him. Now, what? Now, who doesn't want that? And who's not going to feed off that if that has been his goal? He wants the attention. Why? Because the attention brings him money. That's really his goal. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest. So every type of person Every perspective in the land, every social stratosphere, every type of person would have had some interest in him. And this is how it works today. You know those who are popular in the the public venue, whose attention do they grab? People from all walks of life. Everybody's interested in being impressed with something. And he was effective at accomplishing that for himself. But from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. We couldn't possibly spend too much time on this phrase. This man is the power of God. Now that's one statement, but then he adds to it. He's the power of God that is called great. And here's the idea. Everything that would have been in the Jewish or Greek mind of the day with regard to the greatness of God would have been embodied in that particular statement. That was the point. They wanted to draw attention. They believed that this was true about him. He wanted this attention to be drawn to him. That his greatness could not be outdone. His power could not be outmeasured. And so the truth about the culture, the truth about the people, was that they not only believed that he was a man of power, they not only believed that he was a man of the power of God, but he was a man of the power of God, of everything called great. Anything that God had done was manifest with equal greatness in the works of Simon the Magician. If God had parted the Red Sea, then anything Simon would ever do would be at least as great as that. If God had resurrected someone from the dead, then what Simon would do would at least be as powerful as that. If God were to save a lost soul from an eternity of torment, then whatever Simon would do would at least be comparable to that. In verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
Now you know and I know that the same old magic trick doesn't keep doing it. Right? I have a friend who's a practical illusionist and I've seen him all. He's got about four tricks. <laughs> and after the second time of seeing one of them, I wasn't really very impressed. In fact, I wasn't that impressed the first time. But even with the most amazing magicians, I remember this guy years ago who claimed he was going to literally move a mountain. Well, what do you do after that? you got to keep doing something that's greater and bigger and larger. And Simon did. And he had done it for a long time. He was no flash in the pan. What he accomplished was having bamboozled an entire region of people and doing it over and over. He wasn't the fly-by-night huckster who performed a few tricks and went on his way. He stayed in the same area and continued to, to perfect his art. He was good. He was amazing. So it's important for us to see the influence of a deceiver. It's extensive. Simon's only one expression. Simon's way of going about it is only one expression. But you know those who have deceived. You know those who in our political world deceive. It's been going on for centuries. You know those in the, the world of art and music and sports who deceive based upon something in their lives. They're committed to some practice of deceit. Why do they keep doing it? Because they're effective at it. They're committed because they're committed. Well, point number two, the compliance of a false believer. The compliance, the external acquiescence to what's required of a believer. In this case, the compliance is baptism and following the evangelist. The compliance of a false believer. The acquiescence to proper conduct. A willingness to fit in or at least to do just enough to be considered one of the team. Modern terminology is behavior modification. It's a call to act right, regardless of the content of your heart. A willingness to obey some of the rules in an effort to persuade others that you're obeying all the rules. As one man said, fake it till you make it. Again, you're doing whatever you can to fit in. In verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so there's a genuine belief. There's a genuine willingness for one's trust to be in exactly what is addressed here. The kingdom of God. You know this in Mark 1.15. Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is what? It's at hand. I stand in full representation of the kingdom of God because I, in fact, am the king. And so a willingness to hear and receive the truth about the kingdom of God is a willingness to subject oneself, to bow down to, to worship the king himself. And in that same text in Mark chapter 1, the words that follow that phrase are repent. Repent. And believe in the gospel. And in one sense or another, Simon persuaded the apostles to believe that that's what had happened. You got to realize, they know he's a trickster. They must have been on their guard. You know, this is no ordinary Joe who just shows up for the worship service one day and says, hey, tell me what I'm supposed to believe. He's going to probably be inclined to hear the message and do everything he can to persuade the teacher of the message that he has embraced the message so that he can engage in the benefits of the message. It's important for you to know that Philip is the only man in the Bible referred to as an evangelist. It's in Acts 21 where he is referred to as an evangelist. Now that's not to say that there aren't other evangelists in the Bible. Obviously Paul had a very evangelistic heart and a very evangelistic practice. We went through Ephesians 4 recently and we said to you that the primary role of the evangelist is to equip the saints for ministry. What ministry? Well, the, probably the ministry of evangelism if he's an evangelist. And that's what he does. 
The person who calls himself an evangelist but wants nothing to do with the church of Jesus Christ is not only doing something that he should be doing but not connected to the church. He's not doing anything he should be doing because what's he evangelizing the lost to? If he's not evangelizing them to the church of Jesus Christ, it's not evangelism. And if there's no one with him, if there's no one following him, if he hasn't engaged in the practical and effective ability to minister to the saints and equip them for the ministry of evangelism and he's out there doing something all on his own, it's not evangelism, folks. What's, what's the point? What's the purpose? This, by the way, is not Philip the Apostle, but Philip in Acts 6. And you know from Acts 6 that those who were engaged in ministry, the apostles, said, we need help. The Hellenistic widows were taking up lots of their time in service, and so they They said, we need someone else to help us to serve tables so that we can be devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. And so, in essence, you can say that these were the first deacons. Philip is the first mentioned among them. And as he sets out to perform the work of ministry, Philip's heart is set upon the basic and most primary message of Christianity that he is referred to ultimately as Philip the Evangelist. He is the man with good news. He's the man with the real message. The text tells us that those who believed followed in immediate obedience. Now there's no figuring out whether or not to be baptized, right? Every instance that you see in the scripture where someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they follow in baptism. That's what a believer does. The text goes on to tell us in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. You see that? Simon believed. Now you and I know plenty of situations. We know lots of situations where a person didn't believe because they weren't given the necessary information to know what to believe. That's more common in our day. People say they're devoted to the gospel and there's no gospel. Our, our church is committed to the gospel. Really? Well, define it for me. Right? Uh, it's the good news. Well, that's not wrong. But come on, give me some more. Right? It's not, that's not wrong. That's what the word means. It means the good news. But the church who doesn't know how to define the gospel is not really a church. It's certainly not a New Testament church. But that's not the case here, right? How do we know that? Because it was Philip. It was Philip who had given him the real message. And by the way, it was Philip, best we can tell, who was convinced that he had embraced the real message. The text says even Simon himself believed. Now this is not simply an assessment of Philip's opinion. This is the word of God itself making a declaration that Philip actually believed. And after being baptized, guess what else he did? He followed Philip. So he actually engaged in what appeared to be discipleship. You know, we have said in our church over and over again, one of the primary marks of the true believer is that he's engaged in discipleship. The person who doesn't want discipleship must not really be connected to the one ultimate discipler. Simon knew enough to know that he needed to follow Philip. So whatever he believed in, it was convincing enough for him to be devoted to setting his sights on emulating someone else's life. See, there's a great deal of false gospel being promoted leading to false conversions, all kinds of unbiblical terminology leading people astray. But do you think Simon heard the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and you, most of you have verses 1 through 4 memorized. And if not, you've at least got it meditated upon enough that you understand it, you know what the tenets of it are, you know that this is where we get probably the most distilled definition of the gospel in all the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now before I read it to you, let me, let me ask a question that you and I ought to be asking together. What in the world happened? You've got Philip on hand. You've got apostles on hand. They are communicating the gospel. They're preaching the word. They're effective. Thousands have repented and believed in the gospel and been baptized. Thousands, literally. The text tells us that Simon believed. 
that Simon actually followed the evangelist. And you know how the rest of this text goes, and if you don't, I'm going to unfold it for you. But let's look for the theology necessary to understand what happened in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That's important. It's important to receive the gospel. You can't receive the gospel unless you hear the gospel. Take a quick look at Romans 10 if you need a little more help with that. How will they hear if they don't have a preacher? In essence, you heard four preachers this morning with crystal clear proclamations of the gospel. They must receive the gospel. And so Paul says to the Corinthians who've uh, had a conduct issue or two, right? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. You embraced it. You bought it. You believed it. You willfully engaged in the content of the gospel. Oh, and this, in which you stand. And you understand this phrase. When you stand in something, you're committed to that being the foundation of all that you do, all that you say. We stand firm on these particular core beliefs. A lot of organizations will tell you today. And then they'll list four of them or six of them. And they'll explain them to you. And they'll say, if you want to know who we are and it gets confusing at some point, go back to that foundation. That's what we stand in. Paul is saying... Not only did you receive the gospel, but you also stand in it. Oh, and this, by which you are saved. He doesn't say you're saved by making a decision. He doesn't say that you're saved by involving yourself in a church. He certainly doesn't say that you're saved by being baptized. But you're saved by the gospel. Now friends, let's just stop for just a minute. Let me just sidetrack for just a second. I'm, I'm willing to guess that every single one of you, including myself in this room, at some point in his or her life, was not impressed by this reality. And your impression was that to be a Christian was to be involved in some sort of church get-together, and maybe it was even this. Maybe it was even a little more noble than that. Maybe it was even something along the lines of having right doctrine. And we're very much into right doctrine. And maybe it went beyond that. Maybe it was so clearly stated in a, in a doctrinal statement. And yet, if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel? You would stammer. You, you would you'd be puzzled. Well, the gospel, it's the Bible. And that's a wrong answer. Well, the gospel, that's, you know, I gave my life to Jesus. That's not the gospel. But Paul says here, having prepared them to hear what the gospel is because he's told them what the gospel is, now says that you're saved by it. And then he uses this conditional term, uh, which we're all very familiar with, and it's the word if. It's probably the most widely used conditional term in all the English language. If. And so all the things that we've just emphasized, this text tells us, the emphasis is on this term. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now, lest you inappropriately insert yourself into this text and say, Oh, I'm, I'm committed to the word. I hold fast to the word. That's not exactly what's being said here. What's being said here is holding fast to the word that was preached by the apostles. So plenty of churches are preaching something. But the real question is, is this what you're holding fast to, what you're clinging to, is it in fact the word that was preached by the apostles, by Peter, by Paul, by James? 
Or is it a different word under the name of the word of God? Because that's certainly common today. And so the test is the Bible itself. A willingness to look closely at what you've been told as a good Berean would to determine whether or not what you're being told is so. If I've told you that once, I've, I've told you that 20 or 30 times. It's crucial that you listen closely to what I tell you, not only for the purpose of adhering to the Word of God, but in your willingness to adhere to the Word of God to determine whether or not what you're being told is so. I want that scrutiny. And you should want it. We should all want it. We don't want to be guilty of leading anyone astray on any doctrinal point, much less the most important doctrinal point, and that is the content of the gospel. And then this phrase, unless you believed in vain. Oh, that helps. Now I get it. So the content was right. The sincerity was there. But it was ultimately meaningless. It didn't take root. It didn't stick. There was a sincerity, but it was obviously not a genuine rest in the whole of the gospel. If you fast forward in this text down to verse 19, Paul tells us that the person whose hope is in Jesus Christ in this lifetime alone, he is of all men most to be pitied. And so the hope here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the hope of the resurrection. You don't have a gospel. You don't have the gospel without the resurrection. Jesus explains the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, verses 20 to 23 with these words. As for what was sown on rocky ground, you know that parable. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Right? There's some, there's some joy. It's real joy. He, he hears it. He receives it. He embraces it. He hears the seed, the message, the word. Yet he has no root in himself. There is no root of the gospel. But endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. It's all it takes. All it takes is some difficulty, some tribulation-laced experience to bring reality out of that individual. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I believe this was Simon. It proved unfruitful. The cares of the world, the, the trappings of the world, choked out the power of the word. Friends, this is an unsaving faith. It is belief in vain. It's belief in vain. Well, point number three, we've looked at the influence of a deceiver. Now we've looked at the compliance of a false believer. He was engaged in baptism, but he was proven to be a false believer. How does that happen? How does that work? He believes in vain. Point number three, the selfish and wicked intent of a deceiver. The selfish and wicked intent of a deceiver, and in this case, it's greed. With Simon, it's greed. He had deep pockets. He didn't want that cut off. Continuing in verse 13 in our text from Luke. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Imagine, the amazing man, the magic man is now amazed. He wants what he sees. That can help me. I could add that to my repertoire, and it would probably make me go a lot further. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And you say, isn't that backwards? The book of Acts, I think you probably know, is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. We see how the church was initially founded. Initially when a person came to be a believer the Holy Spirit would delay his full indwelling in that believer so as to confirm the work of the apostles. So when the apostles laid their hands on the believer the Holy Spirit indwelt that person in full. As I said this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. 
thereafter in every case throughout the New Testament. When you see a person come to know the Lord, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's normative. That's prescriptive. That's what the Bible teaches about what happened thereafter, after the original church initiation age. In Romans 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It is impossible to be a Christian and not have the Spirit of God. Because in the moment that a person becomes a Christian, he is indwelt by the Spirit. And you know from 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the primary problem with a person who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God is that he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot discern them. Paul goes on to say there that the spiritual man or the saved man appraises all things. Well, verse 18 in our text in Acts 8 goes on to say, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This is how Simon had been able to practice what he had practiced. This is how he was able to get what he had gotten. And so he thought surely this would do the same in this case as well. To offer money would provide for me what I want. And he said, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Simon, why would you want that ability? What have you seen? What have you experienced? What do you know that would lead you to think that that would be a good thing for you to be involved in? Well, certainly... The background from which he comes is one of having deceived many people. And this certainly would provide greater evidence of his greatness if he could accomplish this. And so his effort was to persuade the apostles, give me this power. Money talks. But not in this case. Point number four. The bold faithfulness of a true shepherd The bold faithfulness of a true shepherd. You know that Peter is the one who penned that text for us in 1 Peter chapter 5, telling us to shepherd the flock of God among us. Poimain, that term that is also translated as pastor. The one who would shepherd the flock is the one who would protect them from wolves. You know that from Acts 20. Paul said there will be those who will creep in. They will sneak in. And they will be wolves in sheep's clothing. And so here Peter is putting into practice what he has called all Christendom to put into practice. Particularly those who would shepherd the flock. Again, your point here, point number four, the bold faithfulness of a true shepherd. And you might even want to put in parenthesis here, speaking the truth in love. Love for whom? Well, first of all, for Christ. But also love for the body of Christ. And I believe love for Simon. If he didn't love Simon, why not just let Simon continue in his deceit? What's the problem? Simon's happy. Why not just take his money? Why not teach him a trick? Why not give him a coloring book that, you know, teaches his children how to engage in the sign gifts, even? Why not do something along those lines? No. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Now you, you know this, right? He's telling him, you're going to perish. You don't have eternal life. And so it's, in a very, it's a very offensive comment. May your silver perish with you. And I don't mean that it's offensive that he's communicating to him that he's going to perish. The more offensive part is keep your money. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's no good here. It will not accomplish what it has accomplished for you in the past, and it certainly will not accomplish what you hope for it to accomplish with me, because that's not how it's delivered anyway. Even if I wanted to take your money, I couldn't teach you how to lay hands on someone so that the Holy Spirit would indwell them. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. It's not how you obtain the gift of God. You know this, that the gift of God is free. It's free. You can't earn it and I can't earn it. And we've done nothing to earn it or achieve it. Simon had given money and 
numerous circumstances very likely that led to his ability to gain something. Why would it not work now? You realize he's just, he's just engaging in his default practice. That's cool. I'm going to buy it. That's what he's done all along. And then this, verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He didn't say anything about his activity at this point, but that the intent of your heart, the condition of who you are, the standing of your soul, that that would be forgiven. Verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You might think we moved quickly through that because I'm going to give you point five now. But under point five, I'm going to walk you back and show you why point four leads to point five. Point five is the irresponsible hard-heartedness of a false believer. The irresponsible hard-heartedness of a false believer. Now, we distinguish between the false believer and an unbeliever, knowing that one categorizes the other, or one falls under the categorization of the other. Uh, All false believers are false believers. All unbelievers are unbelievers. But there are unbelievers who are false believers. There are unbelievers who don't care. They're not interested in convincing you that they're believers. But there are unbelievers who want you to believe they are believers because they want something from you. So again, point five, the irresponsible hard-heartedness of a false believer. Let me put it in a nutshell for you and then we'll unfold that text. It's an avoidance of consequences. That's what it is. That's what it looks like. It's a willingness to get out of what is deserved. Now, in verse 24, it says, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is the irresponsible hard-heartedness of a false believer. And some would say, well, it's a noble request. He's He's asking Peter, the apostle, to pray for him. How could that be bad? And this is not unusual. Nothing wrong with asking someone in spiritual leadership to pray for you. That's a good thing if your heart intent is right. It is one of the primary responsibilities of a shepherd to be praying for the flock. Again, that's why deacons were established to be deacons so that those in the ministry would be able to have time to pray and spend time in the Word. But let me ask you one question and then you and I will answer this question together. What's wrong with Simon's request? How could this be a bad request? Number one, number one, he is unconcerned with the Holy Spirit. He is unconcerned with the true Holy Spirit. Go back with me to verse 21. The first part says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. What matter? The matter of the works of the Holy Spirit. You don't have any connection to that. You don't have any claim on that. You don't have any portion of that. You're not involved in that. You're utterly apart from the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referring to. Simon wants the power of the Holy Spirit for his own advantage, but he does not want the true work of the Holy Spirit. He just wants to be able to accomplish something so as to continue wowing the crowd. So he's unconcerned with the true Holy Spirit. He wants the the bells and whistles of what he thinks is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number two, he is unconcerned with righteousness. And this, friends, as you know, is the mark of the easy believism movement. It says, well, you know, I know he's not walking with the Lord. You know, I know that, you know, he's, he, he's got a lot of unrepentant sin. Sure. Yeah, I know he's not involved with the body of Christ, but he's a believer because when he was five, he asked Jesus to come into his life Oh, he's got no interest in righteousness. That's for later. It's completely foreign to the teaching of the Scripture. It's completely foreign. Simon is unconcerned with righteousness. How do I know that? 
Because verse 21 goes on to say, for your heart is not right before God. Did you know that your heart can be right before God right now? You say, but, but I'm still a sinner. Right. But you can be right with God. You can have a clear conscience. And it's not based upon your performance. It's based upon your repentance. It's based upon your willing acknowledgement that you cannot achieve what God requires and your acknowledgement of the fact that you need the one who has completely fulfilled the law. You rest in him. You, you trust in him and you seek forgiveness for where you have failed to rightly represent him. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now you know this from the final verse in this pericope that Simon's concern was that none of this fall upon him. But he didn't realize that righteousness was the gateway to avoiding the eternal consequences that he and you and I deserve. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. From God against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And Simon had heard the truth, but it hadn't penetrated his heart and he was suppressing it. He didn't want the content of the gospel. He wanted the benefits. Therefore, his heart is not right before God. Your heart, my heart, can be and must be right before God comes through repentance. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, the just died for the unjust. The righteous, right? The righteous died for whom? For the unrighteous. Why? Because God requires complete Righteousness, and therefore the only valid substitute was the one who is righteous. And your hope and my hope must be in him and his full accomplishment on the cross and in the resurrection. There's no way around it. There's no, there's no grading on the curve. There's no other standard. It is the perfect standard of God's righteousness. You say, I can't achieve that. You're off to a good start. You're off to a good start. In Romans 3, 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. How about this? This is a crazy statement for Paul to make in this day with a bunch of Jews listening in. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. <laughs> so Paul, Paul's very clear from the beginning. I'm not telling you to do better. I'm not telling you to perform more accurately. I'm not telling you to get your act together. But the righteousness of God with which He has existed since eternity past and which He requires from you and from me which we can't achieve and can't earn is achieved apart from the law. At least for your perspective and mine. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You believe that? That's it. That's it. We don't add anything to that in terms of what it is to be reconciled to a holy God. There's nothing more that you do. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. And if you try, it's an insult. The just died for the unjust, making them just. You go down to verse 25 in Romans 3, about halfway through the verse, Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness. What was to show God's righteousness? His propitiatory death, his wrath-satisfying death, took place that righteousness would be known and established, that a display of righteousness, that God doesn't turn his back on sin, he doesn't wink at it, he doesn't say, well, you know, you gave it a good go. He pours out his full wrath upon the only one who could receive that wrath substitutionarily in a propitiatory way. So having done that, as I said, God's wrath is satisfied. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, which Simon did not. But he convinced Philip that he did. It's a deceiver. It's very effective. Number three, why Simon's request was a wrong request. He is unconcerned with repentance. How do I know that? Well, it's not because I'm smart. It's because I can read. (laughs) Verse 22 says, repent. The implication is he has not repented. Repent. He's already told him that you're condemned. You will perish. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. He calls it what it is. And this isn't, this isn't a scripture beating, you know. He's not trying to make him feel bad. He's not trying to ruin his life. He's, he's trying to help him have a life. So he speaks the truth in love. Simon, repent of this wickedness of yours. This isn't just some kind of casual deception. This isn't just a personality conflict. This isn't you having a bad day. You made a bad decision. This is wickedness. This is God-hatred. This is a willful involvement in that for which God sends people to hell forever. Repent of it. Turn from it. Have a new mind. Metanoia. Have a new mind. A mind that is utterly and polarly focused in an opposing direction. Again, Mark 1.15, Jesus says, Repent. And believe in the gospel. Don't just kind of turn your back on your sin saying, I shouldn't have done that. That was was a bummer. You know from Peter in Acts 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You heard this passage quoted this morning in the baptism waters. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit needs to be repentance. Number four, as to why Simon's answer or his request is not a good request, he's unconcerned with heart condition. He's unconcerned with heart condition. He's hard-hearted. He's seemingly impenetrable. Because he's, he's kind of there, you know what I mean? He, he's kind of wrapped up in it. He's, I think, emotionally involved. He's, he's willfully engaged in the the circumstance. And so there's, there's some movement on him. And so it would seem as if he's come to the brink of reality and said, ah, I'm not interested. He's unconcerned with his heart condition. He's, he's standing there, his soul laid bare with Peter's careful and accurate efforts to expose his heart condition. And Simon doesn't care. He's too interested in selfish concerns to be interested in the condition of his soul. The text goes on in verse 22 to say, And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. (laughs) I'm pretty sure when Peter the Apostle says something that it would be a good thing to respond and do it. There's no response at all to that. There's no response at all. He says, repent of this wickedness. And then he says, pray to the Lord. Simon, pray to the Lord and ask him this. If possible, I don't know if it's possible, but if it is, that the intent of your heart, you know, that's the point. That's the issue. It's the condition of your inner man. That that would be forgiven you. That your motive would be exposed and dragged into the light so its head could be lopped off. Simon, don't hide it. Come on. Don't hide your motive. I'm on to you. You're wicked. You're going to perish. Don't do that. Well, today is still today. Repent, Simon. I suggest to you that Simon would have made a good Arminian Because he doesn't believe in total depravity. 
He doesn't believe in total depravity. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this idea that man simply needs the assistance of the Holy Spirit. See, that's what Simon had done. He had said, I need a little help. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked go astray from the womb. And the person who holds out hope that he or others just seem to, they need to kind of flip the switch. They need a little assistance. They need a little help. They don't need the Savior that Peter has preached. They don't need the Savior that Philip has preached. The one who will spare others of their wickedness. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things. Simon, believe that your heart is deceitful. Don't believe that you need a makeover. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. And by the way, who can understand it? I believe Peter would have had Simon believe Ezekiel 11, 19-20. I'll give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. See, this is the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's work. I'll do that, says the Lord. I will remove the heart of stone. The Lord doesn't say, I believe you can remove the heart of stone. Just, Just ask for my help. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Well, the fifth reason that Simon's request is not a good request is that he's unconcerned with bondage to sin. Again, you've heard it so many times there's somebody who's just all wrapped up in sin and he's not concerned about that except to cover it over. He's not concerned about the condition of his life that's proven by his entanglement in sin. Romans 6, verses 6 through 8, though, say, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? That man-centered theology that says that you just need to initiate the relationship with God, also says that, well, when you kind of back away from that relationship with God and you're now enslaved to sin, you're still a Christian. But biblical Christianity would say you were never a Christian. And the most unloving thing that we could communicate to people is this watered-down, man-centered idea that man brings himself to the Lord and he keeps himself with the Lord. But see, the one who stays with the Lord is the one that the Lord snatched out of the pit of hell. So who gets the credit? Well, God gets the credit. On the other hand, the person who gets the credit with a man-centered, watered-down theology is man himself. And by the way, he deserves credit for that because that's all he gets. And he's still destined for eternal torment. Romans 6 verse 7 goes on to say, For one who has died has been set free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He says you're no longer enslaved to sin. You still have the flesh, you know, from the next chapter, but you've got to fight. And it's the Word of God. It's a meditation upon the Word of God, according to the last verse in the chapter, chapter 7, that is the key. That's a person who says, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I, I invited Jesus into my life, but holiness, what's that, what's that for? Righteousness, I don't care about that. Repentance, I'm not interested in that. Bondage to sin, what's the big deal? We're all sinners. Proverbs 5 verse 22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He's so entangled in his sin, if he falls over, he is unable to assist himself to do anything. So he he does what little he can to convince others that he's not entangled in sin, although others would look on and say, you know, you're entangled in sin. No, I'm not. You don't know my heart. Number six, the sixth reason why Simon's request is a bad request. He's only concerned with the consequences. That's all he's concerned with. Verse 20, that Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And you know what Simon has asked? Oh, Peter... That all sounds good, but let's do this on my terms. 
what I would rather, instead of doing what you are telling me to do, to repent and pray to the Lord that the intent of my heart might be forgiven, I, I see it a different way. I think it would be better, Peter, if you prayed for me that these things don't happen to me. Because that's really what I'm concerned about. Who wants to go to hell, really? Peter, would you do that for me? Good meeting you. I'm going to get back to work. Friends, the consequences are overcome for the believer. The consequences ought not to be the driving point or the primary issue for the believer. In fact, it's not. Although it's a great joy to know that you've been spared from the eternity that you deserve. In Romans 6, 9 to 11, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See that? The consequences are taken care of. Consequences are taken care of. And this is what should have been on Simon's mind. Verse 23, again, I just want to read it again. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're, you're all pent up. You know, you're a mess. Your sin has got you so tangled up, you don't know when you're coming and going. You're bitter. It's clear, it's obvious. Yeah, whatever. Would you just pray for me? I don't want this stuff happening to me, so just, you know, put in a little good word to the big guy, would you? That's the attitude. So then what's the solution to hard-hearted, unrepentant, spiritual lifelessness? You know, if it's a work of God, if it's a work of God that only God can do and God is determined to do, then what's the solution? Where's the hope for the person who hears this message and says, wow, that's heavy. I was just looking for free donuts. <laughs> you know, what does that person do? Uh, well, verse 22, pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I want to finish this passage from our Savior in Luke 9. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, there's a lot of talk in our culture about coming after Jesus, you know, knowing Jesus, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ. Some of it's good and some of it's not. So in order to know what's good and what's not, we look at the words of our Savior, who explains it for us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny self, be willing to die, and follow me. Not a good recruiting tactic. But this is the only way. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Don't you know that Simon would have saved his own life? That was his effort to save his own life. I, I can do this. I've done it before. I've managed. I've done well. Whoever would save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Father, I pray that you would make us effective. Help us to honestly and faithfully reflect the reality of what it is to, to be a true convert, not one who's engaged in deception, chooses to be baptized, and then walks as a false convert. Uh, but Lord, our hope and our desire is that you would produce in us a great passion for personal purity, a great passion for repentance. Help us to pray this prayer, Father, with consistency in our own lives, that we would recall the reality that the person that you save is the humble person. You give grace to the humble, but you oppose the proud. And So, Lord, may we be a church full of people who have pleaded with you to forgive the intents of our hearts. That you would receive the glory for having forgiven us. Not that we would receive some credit for reaching out to you, but that as you have moved on our hearts, we would respond with submission, obedience, humility, a willingness to 
to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. It's a short life that we live. Eternity is infinitely incomparable to the short window of time during which we have privilege and opportunity to to lose our lives for Jesus Christ that we might gain them. Lord, we pray that during the remainder of our time together that it would be a time of rich joy and fellowship, deep commitment to one another, to Christ, a willingness to bring the Word of God to bear upon each other's hearts, a warm and friendly and kind and gracious welcome to those who are with us for the first time or the second or third, and that ultimately that Christ would be exalted, that we would find Him to be good and gracious and loving, And that as we speak the truth in love to one another, we would never, ever, ever give off the appearance that we somehow have achieved something that someone else has not and that we have this expectation that others would simply be as good and righteous and humble as we think we are. But Lord, may it be all about proclaiming the kindness of the Savior who saves lost sinners. For all of those who will believe, they will have eternal life. They will know and love Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.